G'day guys, it's great to be back, we've been away for a couple of weeks, holiday, but I've come back sick, so uh, pray for me tonight that I get through without a coughing fit, because once I start coughing, I don't stop for the next two hours, unfortunately, uh, and so much so, and I have to give this warning, because when I arrived this morning, one of the small children ran away from me in fear, uh, I coughed so much that I've burst all the blood vessels in this eye. Uh, so up the front, you can probably see I look like something out of a horror movie. But anyway, up the back, you just think I'm cross-eyed because it looks that way. Anyway, let's look at God's Word together, and I'm going to pray that my voice laughs. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege it is to be able to study John's Gospel together. And we thank you that uh, as we study it, we get to see our Lord and Saviour more and more clearly uh, so that our faith is strengthened, so that we see why it is that we believe in Him and through believing in Him, have eternal life. And so we pray now that as we look to Your Word, uh, that it will help us get an even better picture of our Lord, and also strengthen our faith in Him. We pray also that You'll sustain my voice for the next little while, while we look at God's Word together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I asked my uh, Gospel team on Wednesday night, uh, who in today's world would draw the biggest crowd? You know, if you, who would fill the biggest stadium today? Uh, would it be a pop star? Would it be a sports person? Who would it be? Uh, I'd be interested to actually know if, if we think here it'd be someone different to my middle-aged pastor group. And sorry, they might listen to the podcast. But they came up with Taylor Swift. And you all know, well, those of you who've been on Invest, I have a soft spot for Taylor Swift. So uh, who would it be? Who would, who would attract the biggest crowd today? Beyonce. What was that? Beyonce. Beyonce. There you go. I don't understand these things. She, she's a singer. There you go. <laughs> but even if it's not, uh, even if it's not Tay Tay or uh, or Beyonce, uh, it's a bit of a, a bit of a sad reflection. I think that for our modern world, the biggest crowds would go and see a pop star. I, I think that's just a bit sad, really. Uh, we were in Melbourne last week. Sam and I went and did the tour of the MCG because uh, we didn't want to go to another shop with the girls, so we said we'd go do that. And I love the fact that the attendance record for the MCG is not an AFL match. Just that fact in and of itself just lifts my heart. <laughs> I was sick and suddenly I wasn't sick. How wonderful is that? The, 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 the attendance record for the biggest stadium in the Southern Hemisphere is not an AFL match, but it's not a cricket match, it's not a rugby league match, it's not a Rolling Stones or Guns N' Roses concert. Do you know what the attendance record at the MCG is? It was in 1959, it was the last night Billy Graham preached in Melbourne. And 143,000 people came and heard him preach the gospel at the MCG. So much so that they'd filled all the stands and the MCG Trust didn't want to let people onto the pitch area, but they had to because the crowd was so big, they had to let people out onto the field to listen to the gospel preached. I think that's pretty amazing. Uh, but in our passage today, in Jerusalem in the 30s AD, Jesus is bigger than Taylor Swift, he's bigger than Billy Graham, he's bigger than anyone else. For this one moment... Hundreds of thousands of people are calling Jesus the King. This is actually a pretty incredible moment in the Gospels when you look at it. Uh, here they are lining the streets saying, Jesus, you are the one, you are the King. But then within one week, if you know the story, no one wants to know him. It's absolutely amazing. They go from, you're the King, we want to worship you, to we don't want to know you. It's the biggest turnaround in history. So let's get into John chapter 12, open it up there in your Bibles. Now, while I was away, we started back in chapter 12 last week. Uh, 
I hope you remember that we did the first 11 chapters of John about 12 months ago or so. Now, the first 11 chapters of John, to get the picture of the book, first 11 chapters are all of Jesus' public ministry. So that covers the time where he's travelling around Galilee and Judea, he's performing miracles, he's teaching, uh, he's doing all these amazing things. And then you get to John chapter 12, to the end of the book, which is roughly about the same length of the book. So one half covers all his life, and then from chapter 12 to the end, the last week of his life, which tells you how important the last week of Jesus' life is. Uh, so it's all been building up to this point. Now we pick it up on the first day of the Passover festival, it tells us. So to understand what's going on here, you have to understand what the Passover festival is. Now the Passover festival, still today for Jews, is the biggest event in the year. So on that day, faithful, on that week actually, faithful Jews from all over Israel at that time would descend on Jerusalem for their annual festival. And what were they coming together to remember? God's salvation. They came to remember how God had saved them as a people. He'd taken them out of slavery in Egypt. Do you remember the story how uh, God passed them over as he judged the Egyptians and then took them out of slavery to freedom and then eventually to the promised land? Now, to get a, a picture of how big this was, at that time, most scholars think there would have been about 100,000 people living in and around Jerusalem. Jerusalem has never been a big city. Uh, it's actually quite small in terms of size. So it would have been about 100,000 people. But for the Passover, conservatively, they, would, they think about a million people descended on this city. So some people writing around that time said there were like two or three million people there, but they think they are sort of like exaggerating. At the very least, goes from about 100,000 to about a million or more people there. So this is massive. And if you think about it, they have come from all the places Jesus has been doing his miraculous signs. So they've come from Galilee, they've come from the countryside of Judea. So all the people there are talking about Jesus. And in particular, word had got around about the last thing he had done, just a little bit earlier in Bethany, just a few miles away, how he had raised Lazarus from the dead in the town of Bethany. So there were people there, it wasn't just word of mouth, there were people there who had seen it happen. There were people there in Jerusalem saying, <coughs> sorry, there's the first cough, uh, saying, I was there, Lazarus was dead, Jesus said, come out of the tomb, and then he came out of the tomb. So they, everyone is talking about that event. So when they hear Jesus is coming up the road and into Jerusalem, this massive crowd comes out of the city to welcome him. So we're talking tens of, if not over 100,000 people lining the road into Jerusalem. And they just want to get a glimpse of this man they've heard so much about. So let's go to verse 12. Just turn off my microphone for a second there, Tim. <coughs> That's all right. Still got a lung. Okay. You can turn it back on. Let's go to verse 12. The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. Now, it's not part of our culture, but you, you wave palm branches for a returning general. That's what you do in the ancient world. If, if Caesar was coming into Rome, you wave palm branches. If, if the king is coming to town, you wave palm branches. It's pretty obvious what they're saying about Jesus. He's very important. And more than that, palm branches were a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Whenever there was going to be a rebellion against the Romans or whoever was in charge, they would wave palm branches. So they're saying, Jesus, you're special. 
You might just be the man who's going to liberate us from the oppression of our, our Roman overlords and establish Israel as a great nation again. And that becomes absolutely explicit in what they say next. Look at verse 13. It says, they kept shouting, Hosanna. That's a word of praise. You call out to God. You see it all through the Psalms. It literally means though, save us. They're yelling out to Jesus as he walks into town, save us. Hosanna. And then they say, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Now, on the one hand, they're just quoting a psalm when they say that. They're just quoting Psalm 118. We could have had a heap of Old Testament readings tonight. We just chose the Zechariah one from what the reason we're going to see in a minute. But that Psalm 118 was a psalm that was read out whenever pilgrims came to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, and so initially, the point of it was, when you come in the name of the Lord, you'll be blessed. But over time, it had sort of taken on a messianic meaning where they were meaning sort of saying the blessed one who will come in the name of the Lord and that's how they're using it as they talk about Jesus they're saying this is God's saviour king this is him coming and just to make that very clear they add on a last little bit look at the end there it says Hosanna he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one and then they say the king of Israel just in case you haven't got it with the waving of the palms and the quoting of the psalm. See, that line is not in the psalm. All of these people are saying, Jesus, we believe you are the king. We believe you are the one God has promised. You are the one descended from David. You are the one who will come to save God's people. You are the one who will defeat all of God's enemies. You are the one who will establish God's kingdom here in Jerusalem. This is a massive moment. And you sort of think, because we're Jesus people, you sort of think, what a cool moment this is. This is great. It doesn't get any better than this. Jesus is getting the recognition he deserves. We, we sort of think, wouldn't that be great in our world today if people recognised Jesus for who he was? Surely this is what Jesus was hoping for when he came to Jerusalem. In fact, lots of churches on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before uh, Easter, you know, make little palm crosses and people make a thing of it. I actually think it's not a great idea because Jesus didn't want them to do that here. You see, we think, isn't that great? They're recognising Jesus for who he is, but we know the rest of the story. We know that within a week, how many of these people were standing with Jesus saying, I'm with him? Zero, not one of them. And we know that within a week, another big crowd, probably with some of the same people who were in this crowd, were yelling out, not, here is the King of Israel. What were they yelling out? crucify him and then they were mocking him and saying look at him he claims to be the king of the jews and they were putting a coat on him and they were putting a crown of thorns on his head and they were spitting on him and so we can't help but ask what happened to them you know how did all these people tens of thousands of people at least go from this hosanna the king of israel to that crucify him how did it happen I think it's fairly obvious that Jesus didn't live up to their expectations for what they wanted from a saviour king. I think we can be fairly certain they had wrong expectations of what the king of Israel, the Messiah, would come and do. With all the waving of palm branches and with all the calling out, it seems they wanted a king who would come and defeat their enemies. They wanted a political king. They wanted a general they wanted someone who would drive out the Romans, who would then come and sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule like so many worldly kings do. But that wasn't the sort of king Jesus had come to be. 
If we look at what Jesus does next, he actually manages to do two things at the same time. On the one hand, he confirms to them, I am the king. I am the one the Old Testament said would come. But then on the other hand, he shows them he's a very different sort of king to the one they were expecting. So come now to verse 14. It says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And we sort of think, what sort of a ride is a donkey? You know, a king should ride a horse, a white horse, or, or better yet, he should be on a chariot pulled along by six white horses. This is too humble an animal for a king. So already Jesus is messing with their expectations for what God's king should look like. But there was more to it than that, because look again, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear no more, daughter Zion, look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt, just as it is written. See, Jesus didn't decide to ride on a donkey because he was tired and there was one standing there. This wasn't a, a spur-of-the-moment thing that Jesus did. He was being very deliberate. In Matthew's Gospel, it actually tells us he set it up, he arranged it, he arranged that there would be a young donkey there that no one else had ever ridden for him to ride. He was deliberately coming on a donkey because he was deliberately fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. It was written that God's King would come sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, where was it written? Well, we read through Zechariah chapter 9 a bit before. Now, everyone turn back there now in your Bibles. Flick back, easy to find. Just go back through the other Gospels. Luke, Mark, Matthew, as you flick. And then once you get out of the New Testament, Malachi is only four chapters long and you're into Zechariah. All right, so second last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9. And we're just going to look at verses 9 and 10. Everyone got there? I'll wait for the... I love the flicking of the Bibles. If, if you have a phone, can you make them make a sound like flicking as you do it? Just make me feel better up here. Anyway, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. And what does Zechariah tell us about God's king there? Well, he comes on a donkey because he's not a fighter. He's not a general. He's not someone who rides a stallion. In fact, it tells us, I'll get rid of the horses because they're for war. I'll get rid of the chariots because they're for war. I'll get rid of your bows and arrows because they're for war. Instead, what does it say about this king? It says he is humble and he is righteous and he will be victorious, but he will stop the fighting. He'll get rid of the chariots and the horses and the, and the bows. He will preach peace and his kingdom won't just be in Israel, it will cover the whole earth. Now, I don't think many of the people in the crowd understood that when Jesus got on the donkey. I think next to none of them there thought, oh, that means he is the one fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament because he's riding a donkey. It tells us in verse 16, even his disciples didn't get it. Even his disciples didn't understand it. But he was saying to them, I am the promised king. You're right when you say the king is coming. But you're wrong because you don't know the sort of king I'm going to be. I'm a humble king. I'm a king who comes to serve, not be served. And you'll see that very soon when Jesus allows himself to be crucified to pay the price for our sins. 
But now come to the second half of the passage. Come back now to John chapter 12. And uh, I want us to look now at the reactions of each of the three different groups of people there that day. Uh, Because actually, I think their reactions are really relevant to us. So the first group is the disciples. So look at verse 16. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. That means they didn't get it yet. They didn't understand the type of king Jesus had come to be. They did understand he was the king. It wasn't that they didn't get anything. You know, the disciples, sometimes we can give the disciples a bit of a bad rap. They never seem to understand everything, they're always slow. They knew Jesus was the king. Back as far as Mark chapter 8, Jesus said, Who do you think I am? And what did Peter say? You are the Messiah, the Christ. But then, do you remember what happened then? Jesus said, You're right, but I'm going to have to suffer and die. And what did Peter do? Peter rebuked him. He said, That's not what happens to God's king. God's king rules. He doesn't get killed, he's not humble like that. You see, they hadn't understood yet the sort of king Jesus was going to be. But when would they understand it? Look what it says. It says, however, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. This is really important. When was Jesus glorified? When was Jesus glorified? See, because we think of glory in a certain way, we think maybe at his transfiguration, remember when he went sort of all white and and the prophets were there and God said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Or maybe at his baptism, maybe that's when he's glorified. Maybe when he ascends to heaven, maybe that's when he's glorified. But all through John's gospel, and we're going to see this time and time again over the next few weeks, all through John's gospel, the moment of Jesus's glory The moment when Jesus is most wonderful, when he is most glorious, is when he is lifted up. And when is he lifted up? When he dies on the cross. Jesus is glorified at the moment of his death. And then in his resurrection, which vindicates him and his death. See, the moment where you see the glory of Jesus most wonderfully is when he dies for your sin. Because that is when you see the most incredible grace and love and mercy of God shown most gloriously when he took the punishment we deserved. So you see, for the disciples, it's only once Jesus died and then rose again that they said, oh, now it all makes sense. Now I understand what he meant about the type of king he would have to be. Now I see why he didn't want them to wave palm branches. Now I see why he didn't want them to put him on a throne. Now I see what he came to do now we actually understand Jesus and that's the thing if you take nothing else away from tonight's passage please take this you only truly know and understand Jesus once you understand what he did for you on the cross when he humbled himself even to the point of death to pay the price for your sins it's amazing how often people even still today you know there's a lot of people say I don't like Jesus and I don't like Christians and that sort of stuff But I think most people say, oh, I like Jesus, even if I don't like the church, or I don't like that Christian and what he says, or that sort of stuff. But when you ask them, what is it you like about Jesus, they say things like, I I like the way he cared for the poor. I I like the way he's a wise teacher. I like the way he's a good example of how to live. All those things are true, but they are not the essence of Jesus. Until you say, I like the fact that Jesus is the king, who humbled himself, who gave up equality with God and humbled himself, even to the point of dying for my sins, 
until you get that, you don't really know Jesus. Because that is who he is. And that brings us to the crowd. So we've got this question in our minds, what happened to this crowd? Why didn't they keep following Jesus? And we get a clue to the answer there in verse 17. Look with me there, verse 17. It says, Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. It's a really important sentence there. Now, we looked at the first half of John's Gospel over 12 months ago, so I'm not down on you if you don't remember this. But all through the first half of John's Gospel, it's really down on people who say, I follow Jesus because of his miracles. It's this story and story time and time again in John's Gospel of people who've come to trust in Jesus because they saw him turn the water into wine. Or come to trust in Jesus because he fed them with a couple of loaves and fish and he fed 5,000 people. Or come to trust in Jesus because they saw him raise a man from the dead. And every time those people who follow him because they saw a miracle, once the going gets tough, where do they go? You don't see them. And once Jesus starts teaching hard things, like, do you know you're a sinner who needs, needs my death in order to be forgiven? They don't want anything to do with him. You see, the crowd loved Jesus when he could do a cra- crazy, amazing things, because who wouldn't love that? But they hadn't yet believed in the Jesus who says, you are a sinner and you need my forgiveness. And it's only by trusting in my death and resurrection that you can find it. They had come out to welcome him because they thought he can do amazing things. They hadn't come out to welcome him because they thought, he is my saviour who will die for me so that I can be forgiven. There are lots of people in our world who say they love Jesus, but the Jesus they love is one they've sort of made up themselves. They're not interested in the Jesus who says uncomfortable things. The Jesus who says, you're a sinner. And the only way you can find salvation is by trusting in my death and resurrection. I was reading the paper this week about the whole Israel Folau business. uh, And one commentator who, I don't know why I go, I'm like a moth to the flame. I know I'm going to disagree with this person in the newspaper. I read their article every time. Uh, And they said, the Jesus I believe in doesn't call people sinners. I thought, well, that's because the Jesus you believe in is one you've made up. He's not the real Jesus. And they said, the Jesus I believe in doesn't exclude people. Well, that's because the Jesus you believe in is a Jesus you've made up to make yourself feel nice and not challenge you. You see, the Jesus who saves is the Jesus who does call you a sinner, but then says, I have humbled myself to pay the price for your sin. I think the crowds in John's Gospel actually help us understand those people who you see, who come along and you sort of think, they love Jesus, they're with with us, They're, they're Christian brothers and sisters, but then after a while they fade away and lose interest and you all know people like that. Usually that's because the Jesus they've come to love is not the real Jesus. He's not the Jesus who is the humble king who came to pay the price for our sins. The Jesus they've come to love is a Jesus who affirms them or or, or, or performs miracles, or who makes them feel good about themselves. There are all sorts of false Jesuses that people follow, and even call their king. So that's what this crowd was doing. They were following Jesus, they were calling him their king, but they just had the wrong Jesus. In the end, the essence of Jesus is the humble king, who calls you a sinner, but then says, I'm willing to die for your sin. 
Last group of people. If you look there at verse 19 is, of course, the Pharisees. So verse 19, it says, Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I think it's really funny listening into the Pharisees. Uh, they're talking to one another there. They're saying, I thought we got rid of this guy. I thought we were going to kill him. And now all the world's following him. They weren't to know at this point that those crowds were going to fade away. They, they were needlessly worried, really. Uh, they thought this was it. They thought everyone was going to follow Jesus and their job was gone. Uh, the Pharisees hated Jesus. And they hated Jesus because he challenged their position and their view and he challenged their religious hypocrisy. And the thing is, there will always be people who hate Jesus. The real Jesus, that is. That's why there's such an outcry when, whenever Jesus is quoted. People, people don't like the real Jesus. He makes people feel uncomfortable because he challenges you that you're a sinner who needs forgiveness. And again, we've seen that in the media over these last couple of weeks. They love the Jesus who is harmless, but not the real Jesus who talks about judgment, sin and forgiveness. But I love how often Jesus' enemies actually say profound things without realising it. And I think they do that here. Just look there at the end of verse 19. They say, look, the world has gone after him. And they think they're just making it, but they're just exaggerating. We've lost. Everyone's following Jesus. Look at how popular he is. But now looking back, if you think about it, they were actually saying a word of prophecy. Because now, with the benefit of 2,000 years, the whole world has gone after him. If you think about it now, there are people from every nation on this earth who worship Jesus. There are people from every language on this earth worshipping Jesus in their native tongue. And what's wonderful is, unlike those crowds, all the people all over the earth are following the real Jesus. Um, not a made-up Jesus, not a mistaken Jesus. We know the real Jesus. A Jesus who is the King, but who is the humble King. A King who offers forgiveness and peace with God. The King who died for your sins. And I pray, my prayer for you tonight, is if you do not know the real Jesus, that tonight you might actually believe in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is not a king like our worldly leaders who comes to rule. Instead, he is a king who comes not to be served, but to serve. And most wonderfully, to give his life as a ransom for our sins. And we pray that we might continue to trust in him. And we pray for our world that people will not make a Jesus in their own image, but instead will come to know the real Jesus, the only way to find forgiveness and peace with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um,